Hello and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 60, Pope Silvarius. Did we? So we had Sylvester. Yeah. And this is Silvarius. Silvarius. And we have heard this name before, so I'm wondering if that's why you're cluing into it. Do you remember? <sighs> Probably had something to do with something. Something to do with someone. <laughs> yeah. Is it someone's baby? It's someone's baby. Good job. Good job. <laughs> yes. His father is Pope Hormistus. Harmistus. <laughs> this is Harmistus's baby. So we could just jump right in there because he was born in Frosinone Campania to a wealthy family of nobles that we already know about because his father was Pope Hormistus. He was born before his father joined the priesthood, and once Hormistus did join the priesthood after he became a widower, it seems that his son followed him very quickly while he was still a very, very young man. So we're like, right in it, it's priesthood time. And like we talked about in Hormistus's episode, Hormistus became very prominent and highly praised as a cardinal deacon that grew in esteem as a strong supporter of Pope Symmachus. Through his prominence, Hormistus also helped increase the prominence and reputation of his son. Although, I mean, we should be very clear here that this doesn't seem to be like outright nepotism or anything like that. There's no inference that Hormistus actually even favored his son for any ecclesiastical role. So it wasn't a, you know who my father is? Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like it was that. It seems like he was a priest and he got very uh, little special treatment. But sort of like Hormistus had this really, really, really positive reputation. And so everywhere that Silvarius went, people were like, Ooh, I know your father, and he's wonderful, so you must be wonderful too. So, you know, one of the, the, the reverse of that situation, basically. And by 536, when Pope Agaptus died, our last pope, Silvarius was serving as a subdeacon. And that's an important thing to point out, because this is where things get a little weird, because that means he was a subdeacon when he was elevated to Pope, and that is relatively unusual. I mean, it has nothing to do with the fact that he was the son of a former Pope. It wasn't like they decided to elect him like, hey, let's just elect Hormistus's boy. It had nothing to do with that and had everything to do with King Theodahad, the trash king that we introduced last week. So Theodahad's in a tight spot. He'd murdered his cousin who had put him on the throne, that's Amalasuntha, and that had given Emperor Justinian a justification to reinvade and retake over Italy. But it was so convenient. So convenient. And Theodahad had sent Agaptus to try and negotiate and tr to stop that invasion, and he'd been unsuccessful because Justinian was too far along in his battle plans and oh everything's just coming together so nicely and then Pope Hageptus had died before he even made it back home so now Theodahad is facing an imminent invasion and he doesn't have a compliant pope to keep the church on side and this is how he comes to Silvarius because he required a pope that was going to be as pro-Gothic as possible, 
And likely for good reason, none of the actual deacons that existed at this time were going to hit that mark. None of them seemed particularly great or, or feeling wonderful about Theoda had. They had had a good relationship with Amalacintha, so. I mean, yeah, the dumpster fire comes in and it is in charge. Yeah, and so he hadn't made a great impression so far with the clergy. So more than likely, he plucked the subdeacon Silvarius out and installed him as pope, threatening the rest of the clergy to elect his chosen candidate, or else. And they've already seen what or else looks like for Theodahad. Other sources, like the Liber Pontificalis, combine this explanation for the unusual election with another possibility, that being that Theodahad might have been bribed by Silvarius, or that Silvarius had purchased his position outright. You know, simony. But here's the account for you. It says, quote, He was appointed bishop by the tyrant Theodahad, Without discussion of the appointment, for Theodahad had been corrupted by bribes, and he terrified the clergy, so that they believed whoever did not support the ordination of Silvarius would suffer by the sword. Accordingly, the priests did not accept him in the ancient way and confirm his appointment before his ordination, but after he had been ordained by force of fear, then for the sake of unity for the church and the faith, when ordination was ended, the priests accepted Silvarius. Also, can I just say now that Silvarius's entry in the Liber Pontificalis is one of the weirdest ones that we're going to cover? Oh, yeah. First off, it is very clearly written by two different people. Oh. Like, the, t the tone and the style shift dramatically. So, the first section is more straightforward, kind of like the ones we've seen so far, but it has this very negative framing of Silvarius. Whereas the second half suddenly is way more in favor of him. And there's also all this like full ongoing dialogue that reads more like a novel than a historical account. How many pages is it? So his entry is seven pages in the Liber Pontificalis. Okay. And, and most of it is full on dialogue. And it reads like an Anita Blake book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Except not that bad. <laughs> Ooh, and I need a Blake book I might actually want to read. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay, it's possible that Silvarius could have bribed the king for his position, but that seems extremely unlikely, and the far more likely outcome was that Theoda had thought this idea of just plucking up a subdeacon would be the solution for his dilemma, and then just threatened everybody to accept it. And just sort of picked one and didn't realize. Yeah, or, you know, maybe he even knew that it was Hormistus' son and he went, oh, that will make them more inclined to accept when I threaten them with their lives. Like I have already done, you know? I don't think he bribed him. It doesn't seem very likely to me. It seems, like, I get that he's from a rich family, but it also seems out of character. He's Hormistus' son. To, like, bribe the this trash king to threaten everybody to let him be pope. Yeah, it doesn't uh, really compel me at all, so. It sounds more like something a trash man would do. It does! And it also sounds like someone who would write whacked-out dialogue in what's supposed to be a historical account might be about, except that it's reverse. They're, like, a super fan of him. It's The, the whole thing... 
is strange. So, but whatever the initial reason, we know for sure that it's Theoda had, not the clergy, that installed Silverius as Pope. And the clergy were extremely wary to accept Silverius as Pope until the consecration was complete on June 8th of 536. I thought there was rules against this sort of thing. The king getting involved with this sort of nonsense. Oh, there definitely has been attempts to do that. And yet the king goes, hey, I have the swords and the army. And what do you have? Cloth? That's cool. I have all the sharp things. Remember that Pope that got thrown in prison and starved to death? Hmm. That's not even a sharp death. No, it wasn't. Let's threaten you of sharp things, but also starvation. He also threatened to kill the entire Senate if Aegyptus didn't go and try to convince Justinian not to invade. <sighs> so this man is like, I will just throw death at you for anything. He's starting to sound like a broken record. He's the worst. I hate him. So they did, They weren't really happy about accepting him. But once the consecration did go through, he was generally accepted. But just because he was accepted by the clergy didn't mean that he was going to have an easy time. Because, as we've been establishing, things are crazy right now. And once again, to understand why things are dangerous for the Pope, we come back to Empress Theodora and her monophysites. <laughs> so when the election of Silvarius was announced, or rather the appointment of Silvarius was announced, the Empress wrote to the new Pope, hoping that she would be able to persuade Silvarius to take a more conciliatory approach to the monophysites, particularly her favorite, Anthemis who we talked about last week, the now ex-bishop of Constantinople that had been summarily deposed by Aegyptus. Apparently, Theodora thought that it was possible that Silverius might, if she so nicely requested, accept Anthemis back into communion and undo the decisions made by his predecessor. And there was also another bishop that had likewise been deposed and exiled for monophysitism. This is uh, Severus of Antioch. So she thought... Maybe he should be brought back into communion, too. You know, if you could just, dear Popey man, do this for me, the Empress. But to no one's surprise, when Silverius received the overtures of the Empress, he wasn't having any of it. He declined to readmit the Monophysite heretics to communion and defended the decisions of Pope Aegyptus. But of course, making an enemy of the Empress was not a great decision for someone who might have wanted to live a long or quiet or peaceful sort of life. So, Father Alban Butler's entry on Silverius suggested that when he signed the refusal and sent it to the Empress, he did so, quote, with a sigh and acknowledged that he was essentially signing his own death warrant. The wordy and dialogue-y Liber Pontificalis gives us his words. Lady Augusta, I will never do this thing to recall a heretic condemned in his iniquity. And when Theodora received his letter of rejection, she was less than pleased. And again, we're going to go to Alban Butler's account. Quote, He returned her a short answer, by which he peremptorily gave her to understand that she must not flatter herself he either could or would come into her unjust measures and betray the cause of the Catholic faith. 
The empress saw from the firmness of his answer that she could never expect from him anything favorable to her impious designs, and from that moment resolved to compass his deposition. Dun, dun, dun. Do, do, death. Yeah. So if the Pope wasn't going to get on her level, he was going to have to go. And it just so happened, oh, so conveniently, that Empress Theodora had another candidate, an archdeacon of Rome called Vigilius, who was at the time in Constantinople. Presumably he'd come in the entourage of Pope Agyptus and had not immediately departed after Agyptus's death. Do you remember Vigilius? We talked about him before. Yeah, I don't remember the joke I made, but yeah. No, I didn't make a joke. You went with Vagilius. Vagilius? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is the man that Boniface wanted to make his successor. And then when he realized that the clergy were not happy with him electing his own successor and he had to burn the decree. So you can imagine how Vigilius felt in that moment. So now he's in Constantinople. He probably went there with Agyptus. He probably stayed there after Agyptus died and his body was removed. And now the Empress is looking quite fine on him. And Vigilius seemed more than happy to agree to take a gentler approach to the Monophysites if he was going to be the next Pope. So now with that firmly in mind, Theodora goes, great, together we're going to bring Silverius down and we're going to place you in his stead. So she also gave... Vigilius, a substantial amount of gold, like 700 pieces of gold, if he would agree to condemn the Council of Chalcedon and accept Anthemis of Constantinople, Severus of Antioch, Theodosius of Alexandria, and other deposed Monophysites back into communion. There's even some speculation that she may have tried to influence to have Vigilius elected prior to the appointment of Silverius which would also explain why the king maybe got so involved aggressively in the choice of Pope back in the election. But we can't say this for any certainty, so. But since Vigilius had agreed to her terms, the empress sent Vigilius back to Rome, bearing a letter for him to give to the military general Belisarius. So the letter ordered Belisarius to, upon his invasion, use his military might to depose Silverius and make Vigilius the new pope. Apparently, on the reception of this letter, Belisarius was extremely hesitant and probably a little resentful that his military campaign was now turning into, like, papal intrigue. But eventually, he was convinced by Vigilius and his wife, Antonina, who was a close associate of Theodora, and according to Alban Butler, when he finally agreed to do this, Belisarius said, The Empress commands, I therefore must obey. He who seeks the ruin of Silverius shall answer for it on the last day, not I. So he's going, well, this is the thing I have to do, you know, it's ours is not to reason why, ours is to do or die, or whatever that thing is that military yes. people say. But it won't be on my shoulders, is what he's getting at, so... And this is a convenient segue back into discussing Belisarius's actual incoming invasion and what was happening on the ground for Emperor Justinian, Belisarius, and King Theodahad. Except not Theodahad because he's dead. Oh, thank God. Huzzah! 
Thank God. Did they put him in the dumpster where he belongs? Uh, sort of. He was deposed by the army due to the oncoming threat that was his fault. And he was killed by a man called Vitiges, who is the son-in-law of Amalasuntha. He's married to her daughter, Matasuntha, although Procopius says they got married against her will, and it's a little bit of a gray area. But anyways, he's Amalasuntha's son-in-law, Wittiges, and he has now killed Trashman. Wittiges took over as the new king, and... Without, again, commenting on the quality of Vitiges, I like to just see this as karma, and it makes me happy. It's Vitiges that's now going to have to deal with the rival of Belisarius, who entered Rome on December 9th, 536. And it's Pope Silvarius who's going to let him in and welcome him to the city. So, this may seem a little bit shocking that the Pope has this invading force at his door, and he goes, Oh, do, come in. Wonderful to see you. Welcome, welcome. We have drinks and food. Just come on in. But really, I mean, Silverius saw the writing on the wall. There was no way that the Ostrogoths, who are still in Ravenna, were going to be able to fend off the juggernaut that is Belisarius, who literally just had Sicily for breakfast. And he knew that the more Rome resisted, the inevitable invasion, the worse it was going to be for them in the long run. So Procopius tells us that both the Pope and the Senate had come to an agreement that to save Rome from further destruction, the Imperial General and his army would be welcome to enter the city via the Porta Asinaria and then garrison within Rome. No questions asked. We know what sacking looks like. Let's try a different approach. And then... Once they get to the city, Belisarius comes in, everything's fine, and he orders that all of the women and children of Rome must leave the city for Naples so that they're out of the way. Just in case some sort of siege starts to happen, they're out of the way, and we have a longer availability of supplies. So, like, every woman in Rome, get out. Every child in Rome, get out. Safety first. Think of the children. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a pretty wise move. And and while this is all happening, Silverius is going, Yep, this is fine. We're we're not being destroyed right now. This is fine. And while this was happening, Wittiges was scrambling to get his army together in Ravenna and march them to Rome, where, when they arrived, they find the Imperial forces inside of the city and did exactly that. They took on siege tactics. And the siege goes on for over a year, with Rome being cut off from all supplies and trade, and an immense amount of violence and destruction. So it may not be happening inside of the city, but now they're under a year-long siege. The Liber Pontificalis describes the situation. In those days, the city was besieged so that no man might go out or come in. And all the buildings, private and imperial and ecclesiastic, were consumed by fire, and men died by the sword, some perished by the sword, some by famine, and some by pestilence. Likewise, the churches and the bodies of the holy martyrs were destroyed by the Goths. Within the city there was a great famine, so that water could have been sold for a price if the springs had not furnished deliverance. It's not a good time. No, that sounds awful. Yeah, this is a massive destruction of the churches and catacomb graves, by the way. 
they're going after all the graves of the martyrs that are super important to the church and desecrating all of them. You can't go on martyr tour if all the martyrs are gone. Exactly. So they're just, yeah, they're just making a a real bad time of it. And side note, too, on the Liber Pontificalis description, the next section says this. At that time, there was a heavy famine throughout the whole world, as Datius, the Bishop of Milan, has related fully in his report so that in Liguria, women ate their own children for hunger and want. Things are bad in Italy as a whole. I don't like it. So imagine things being that bad everywhere in Italy and then putting Rome under siege. <sighs> and for once, this is actually historically verifiable information, even though it comes from the Liber Pontificalis, because Procopius also writes about an Italian famine and reports of cannibalism in areas hit the hardest by starvation. And the so what we need to take away from this, aside from that's awful, is conditions during the siege had to, with like within the city, had to be absolutely brutal. Oh yeah, if people not even inside the city are eating their children. Yeah, exactly. And and then you have them in there for a year. But there's no children in the city to eat because, you know, Belisarius made them all leave. Gotta eat full-grown adults. And for the most part, this whole famine thing is somewhat tangential to our story. So in brief summary, in the end, the Byzantine imperial forces would out-strategize, out-fight, and outlast the Ostrogoths, and King Wittiges and his wife Matasuntha were taken into captivity and brought to Constantinople. This isn't the end of the Ostrogothic kingdom. We're going to come back and revisit how the rest of this invasion went later on. But this is where we're going to leave it for the time being. So while this is all happening, while the rest of our Pope story is happening, Belisarius is eventually going to defeat Wittiges and take him back to Constantinople. But now we need to go back a little bit and catch up with our Pope, because what happened while the siege was going on... What had happened? Silvera's story kind of kicks off a little bit. So... Remember when Vigilius brought Belisarius that letter from Theodora instructing him to see Silvarius deposed? Yeah. This is where that starts to happen. So, during the siege, a letter was produced from somewhere. 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 <laughs> yeah. Allegedly written by Pope Silvarius to King Wittiges, offering to ensure that one of the city gates was left open so that the Goths could enter the city and take the Byzantines unaware. Okay. This is the man who just let the Imperial forces in, and now he's like, hey, you other guys who are desecrating the graves of the martyrs, how about I keep the gate open for you? Here's a door. Come on in for desecration time. Absolutely. So this letter is obviously a forgery, but it was enough to have Silvarius arrested and then literally stripped of his pallium and ecclesiastical vestments, forced into the garb of a monk, and sent into exile. Wow. And Vigilius is imposed as the new pope. What a piece of junk. Oh, just you wait. There are a few accounts who give us differing details of how this happened, and although they tell us roughly the same story, they give us some more insight to look at. So we're going to go over a couple. Alvin Butler's account is that when the letter appeared, Belisarius was immediately aware that the letter was a forgery and was even able to determine who forged the letter. 
This was some some lawyer called Marcus and a soldier called Julianus. Alban Butler's account is that when the letter appeared, Belisarius was immediately aware that the letter was a forgery and was even able to determine who had forged the letter. This was a lawyer called Marcus and a soldier called Julianus. Two people forged it. Yeah, and they're they're not super important, but they they wrote this letter, so Belisarius dropped the treason charge against Silverius on the condition that he would comply with Theodora's commands and readmit Anthemis to communion. But Silverius refused and fled back to the Basilica of Santa Sabina to take refuge in hiding there. However, several days later, he was summoned back before the general at the Penician Palace, and when he arrived, Belisarius's wife, Aunt Nina, quote, received him sitting upon her bed whilst Belisarius was seated at her feet. She loaded him with reproaches, and immediately a subdeacon tore the pal off his shoulders. He was then carried into another room, stripped of all his pontifical ornaments and clothed with the habit of a monk. After this, it was proclaimed that the Pope was deposed and became a monk. He also makes mentions of senators who were also banished by Belisarius on similar charges, but yeah. Remember what I said about Theodora and how all of the historical sources generally hate her and she plays this very villainous woman role? Antonina is very much the same way, and, and for her to ha like to be stretched out very, you know, lasciviously on a bed while she's having the Pope summoned to her, well, Belisarius, the incredible military general, sits at her feet. It's all very unreliable. The Liber Pontificalis gives us dialogue and a slightly different version, where Vigilius first comes to persuade Silverius rather than to try and overtake him. But when he refused, Vigilius was the one who told Belisarius that Silverius was writing to plot with Vitiges. This also has the account of Belisarius's wife receiving Silverius on her bed with Belisarius at her feet, so, you know... That's in the Liber Pontificalis as well. That is such a weird image. It so is. It's definitely that evil woman, witchy kind of thing going on. With the military general just sitting like a dog at her feet. Yeah. It's it's definitely supposed to be this, like, submissive, which is so weird because Belisarius is so not that kind of guy. But they clearly, they clearly have it in for Theodora and Antonina, so. The most detailed account is in the Brevarium of Liberatus of Carthage, written somewhere between 555 and 565. His account leans heavily on vilifying Vigilius as the overly ambitious and greedy and a murderer, which we'll get to, making it very clear that Vigilius came to Rome with the express purpose of becoming Pope and promising Theodora that Anthemis would be restored when he was Pope. Procopius, on the other hand, just doesn't seem all that interested with the whole intrigue, which is weird because this is the man who wrote the secret histories, <laughs> but he just mentions that Silverius was accused of betraying Rome and was deposed by Belisarius and made a monk. So, whatever happened there, the Pope is definitely in exile. And he was sent through Lycia in Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, to serve out exile in Patara. However, the Bishop of Patara, though he's not named, 
is said to have received the Pope and quickly became convinced of his innocence. He was deeply troubled by the fact that the innocent Pope had been so abused, and he personally sent out an envoy to Constantinople to speak with Emperor Justinian, asking for a fair trial for Silvarius. So according to historian Deborah Booten McCoy and Alvin Butler, the Bishop of Patara made a significant impression on Justinian. Quote, he terrified him with threats of divine judgment for the expulsion of a bishop of so great a sea, telling him, there are many kings in the world, but there is only one pope over the church of the whole world. Justinian appeared startled at the atrocity of the proceedings and gave orders that Silvarius be sent back to Rome. So Justinian orders Silvarius back to Rome and orders that a proper inquiry should be held. Like, let's do this the right way, people. So Silvarius returns to Italy via Naples with the intention of going to Rome, but he never made it there. Mm. He was intercepted by Vigilius, or maybe men sent by Vigilius, and taken back into custody and shipped off to a more extreme exile on a deserted prison island, either Palmaria or Palmarola, kind of debated, but Palmarola seems to be the more likely candidate based on its location, but we'll get to it in a moment. So, he is now in a deserted prison island in exile because his rival to the papacy had went, oh, no, 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 you don't, and sent him away. <sighs> Silvarius didn't last, last much longer after he arrived in Palmarola and starved to death within a few months. Months? Yeah. Only Procopius tells a different story of Silvarius being directly murdered by one of Antonina's women, a woman called Eugenia. But yeah, he definitely starved to death in exile after being illegally deposed, so... The accepted date of his death, according to the Liber Pontificalis, is June 20th of 538. He was buried on the island, and his body was never returned to Rome. However, an epitaph was erected for him on the island, and Wendy Reardon's book gives us the inscription. It says, Silvarius, supreme head of the Roman temple, died in a foreign land. Under this, this tomb holds his bones. And... When it was made known that Silvarius had died, Vigilius was de facto named the legitimate pope. And how that's going to go is going to be our story for next week. Flagilius. <laughs> Flagilius, Vagilius, Vigilius. Well, I don't know. It's more like flagellation at this point. <laughs> well, oh, just you wait. Next week is going to be a fucking banger <laughs> things are gonna happen i gotta say when we first started doing this podcast vigilius is one of the stories i've been waiting to tell you because ridiculous things happen like you think it's pretty bad right now he's he's conspiring to murder the pope before him it's it's pretty bad that's not how you get elected it gets so much worse and so much more crazy That'll be next week, but now we need to rate poor, poor Silvarius. Papatum infallium. The struggle between Silvarius and Vigilius, with everything that's going on, 
is considered a low point in papal independence. It is a bad time for papal impact. However, he remained steadfast in the defense of the orthodoxy against the wishes of the empress, even when he was extremely aware that that was going to end poorly for him. Like, he never relented, and that is martyr-level courage and dedication, and that is generally how he will be perceived in the future. It's a bad papal impact, but he did the right things. Mm, yeah, okay. I'm gonna, let's give him a two. I'm gonna give him a four. Okay. Because he, he resisted very hard, and, and, you know, we scored people like Fabian pretty high for being the Pope and just being like, no, I refuse to do exactly what you want me to do because I'm sticking with my convictions. So I'm going to give him at least a four. So he gets a six. Fructus prohibitum. Look, he gets zero, but Vigilius is going to score so high. Oh, I'm sure. If he had been guilty of negotiating with Vitiges to open the gates of Rome for the besiegers, it'd be worth a point or two. But we know it's a forgery, so it's a zero. Seculari impactum. So he was deposed, exiled, and eventually ended up dead by the wishes of the imperial leaders. So that's not good. During his papacy, the Ostrogoths destroy the churches outside the walls of Rome, as well as the catacombs and the graves of the martyr. This maybe doesn't count against him per se, but it's worth acknowledging because this is a huge loss to history as well as to the morale of the church at the time, and the people of Italy, and the people of Rome. Like, it's a bad time. And it's not his fault, but it is a bad time. He did his best. I'm going to give him two, just because he let the imperial forces in to Rome, and that probably saved Rome some even worse. At least a little bit? Yeah, okay. I'm going to give him... Maybe like a three. I feel like it would have been way worse if they weren't allowed in. It it probably would have been. So that gives him a five for secular I impact him. Fossium sanctus. Okay, let's look at this man's face. So I have why do I have three versions of the same image to show you? Look, I don't know. You do the research. That's your <laughs> job. I'm gonna send you the one we rate on first. It, there's one that's not amazing quality, there's one that's real bad quality, and then there's one that has been enhanced, but it is clearly the same image. So we'll just, we'll just go with this, and you can tell me with everything that you feel what this man should get. The first one, he looks a lot like Robin Williams. He reminds me so much of, have you ever seen the Swan Princess movies? <gasps> yes. He looks... He reminds me just the way his hair is. It very much reminds me of, of Rothbart. Oh, you're right. It just kind of does. I don't know why, but that's that's my feel about it. So I don't dislike it. I think it's just that in the first one, he's got those, you know, the, the Dumbo squid flappies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he looks just generally disappointed. I mean, in the lower ones... He's got more of a majestic handlebar mustache going than in the first one. It's true. And maybe that's why I'm feeling the Rothbart, because Rothbart's definitely got that going on. 
I I I loved Rothbart, so he's probably gonna get a couple extra points for me. It's to me, it's a six. Yeah, okay. That's I'll match you. Okay, so then he will get a three in this category. So there's some things we're gonna look at after, but for now, I'm gonna show you a picture of him looking extra sad. Extra sad. It's because he's starving. Whoa. He's extra sad and definitely emaciated and starving to death. His beard can't even hang on anymore. Yeah, and then here's him in exile. Being real sad. He just looks, he kind of looks pissed now. He's like, are you guys just gonna roll away? Like He needs like a sad song over this one. I think that the one standing in the middle with his arms crossed, that's gotta be Vigilius. Oh yeah, he looks real smug. <laughs> he's, he's even got like a horn where he's like, her. Bye forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just being a bigger trash bag. You know, we got rid of Theoda Had, and now we have Vigilius, so. We gotta have a trash bag somewhere, I guess. Yep. Tempest Pontificus. June 8th, 536 to March 538. This is to his point of deposition rather than to his death. So he gets a score, he gets two years and a score of 0. 0.5. How unfair. I know. That's just not very nice, but that is the name of the game. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. He is a saint. He was canonized as a saint in the 11th century by popular acclaim of his martyrdom with a feast day of June 20th. He first appears on a list of saints from that era, where he is also credited as a patron saint. Yes, yes, what is he? He's the patron saint of Ponza, which is a an Italian island, not the island which he was exiled to. Oh, I was going to be like, that's fucking rude. I know, right? But it's right next to the island that he was. That's still kind of rude. But allegedly, this is due to a... Miracles. At one point, a boat of fishermen who had set sail from Palmarola got caught in a storm, and these men called out to St. Silvarius to help them, and he appeared before them as an apparition, calling them to the island of Ponza, where they were able to safely land and survive the storm. First of all, what a weird thing to yell for. St. Silvarius, help, help us! Me. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you try anything, though? Yeah, it was... So, like, I assume, like, Silvarius was, like, bottom rung like they're just they're desperate <laughs> at that point they've they've yelled for god they've yelled for jesus they've yelled for mary they started listing off popes <laughs> i mean they probably knew that he'd been in the area at some point like that's part of the history of the area he was exiled and died there but yeah you're probably right and to this day, the island of Ponza has a massive festival on his feast day, La Festa di San Silverio. And I have, like, if you want to watch it, here is a little video of what the festival looks like. It's a thing. Yeah, it's a strange little video. And this was the 2018 version. I will put the link in the show notes. Wow, so because... um, they're climbing across to grab things? Medallions? Donuts? I don't know what... There's a watermelon eating contest. I have a zero explanation for you. I There's wheelbarrow races, sack races. 
I don't know what they're eating now. It looks like Cheetos. Now they're making flower arrangements. It's a boat. Because, you know, he was sent out, you know, for the miracle. But that's not a competition. They just <laughs> do that. It's like a float for homecoming parade, but a boat. Yep. Someone shakes some balloons out of a sack. And that is St. Silverius that they are carrying down. And then they all get in their boats and they go to visit where he died. So Do they bring the statue with them? Uh, no, they don't. And then there's a big concert. Yeah, and fireworks. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's a thing. So that's what they do. We'll have to go there for the watermelon eating contest alone. I mean, I would go to Ponza. It is, it is beautiful. So absolutely. But if you want to be closer, there is also a shrine to him in the United States at Dover Plains, New York, that is maintained by Ponezi immigrants. Oh, yeah? Are you going to go visit that? Um, I, it's, it's so far out of the way, but there's the shrine. New York's not that big. Yeah, but like, I have like three days, man. So I, I have a list of places that are of papal significance in New York City from one of the, the other sound education organizers. So I'm going to check those out. So that's the website for you. I'm going to send you some pictures of the weird ass stuff they do there. So this is in the United States. Okay, they so have they're a doing the same shrine. boat, boat, uh, boat statue parade. And so that's, uh, he gets a lot of extra, a lot of extra attention. That's him. So now I'm going to give you his total score, which is not as bad as I thought it would be. It's a 15.5. Not bad. So he has a legacy. He definitely has some impact, and he definitely has made an impression. But is he popey enough for a papal bull? No, I'm sorry. No. I just feel bad for him. I feel awful for him. Until we actually recorded this episode, I don't think I've referred to him as anything but poor Silvarius the entire time but since I wrote this, like, weeks ago. So, yeah. um, No, he doesn't have it. But he is part of of a wild story that we're kicking off to. So, and it's it's sad because we can't even make him patron saint or something because he already is. But at least he gets a nice festival. At least he gets that watermelon eating competition. That looks like an awful lot of fun. I just really like watermelon. <laughs> you and my husband can go in and compete in the watermelon eating competition, Perfect. and I will take all the videos for you. I like watermelon, but not that much. I love and YouTube watermelon. Will just you'll love it. But before we go, we have two silly Pope watches. Silly ones? I love the silly ones. We need to get uh, Cheryl in. I don't know if you've heard her on Ghost Toast. She she's like does like ghost news or whatever, and she just sits there and goes <laughs> to make news noises. And it's the greatest. Cheryl makes the best noises. I love every noise Cheryl makes. <laughs> yes. So, the first silly Pope watch happened back at the beginning of September, when Pope Francis was on a papal flight to Mozambique. During the flights, which also act as press conferences, Pope Francis was presented with a new book, which was written by one of the reporters on the flight, called How America Wanted to Change the Pope. And the book is about the conservative opposition in the United States to Pope Francis's papacy. This is something 
that has come up, apparently there is a huge, uh, strong opposition movement to him that has occasionally people that are like seriously worried that it might become a schism. So the the Pope was given a book on on this kind of like the the summary of what's going on and an evaluation. It's not a negative book. It's just sort of a, a, a report of what's going on. Facts are good. The Pope laughed and joked to the reporters that the book was a bomb. And then when asked how he felt about the ongoing conservative movement in the U.S., he told the reporters, quote, For me, it is an honor that the Americans are attacking me. Oh, I'm so glad that he's pleased. Uh, and just just so we have some context on that, I did a very brief overview about what the opposition in the States has against him. So here we go. They say he's watering down orthodoxy. So they criticize the Pope for being too open to allowing divorced and remarried couples to receive sacraments. They're angry about his emphasis on the environment and his support for migrants and his condemnation of the death penalty and his criticism of capitalism. Gasp. I mean, all those things Jesus hates. Jesus wants you to love everybody and wants to punch everyone rich. So, like, yeah. I don't know what religion you guys joined, but you clearly did not <laughs> read the Bible. Right? I mean, isn't... I can't remember where it is, but it's easier for a donkey to pass through the, the eye of a needle. The camel. The camel. It's a big, it's bigger. It it's a camel. <laughs> To pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. These conservative Catholics who are in a po in opposition to Pope Francis just don't really seem like they're in the right place. So I would probably consider it an honor to if they were at me. Right? Yeah, I'm sure he's like, ah, these people who have no idea what's happening, fight me. Yeah. You suck, so I'm happy that you're against right? me. Right? I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> So, yay for Pope Francis on that one. The next story just broke yesterday. Releasing with the headline, Pope Francis criticizes overuse of adjectives. <laughs> you know, we're focusing on the real stuff. Yeah, the when. real, this is such good Pope, Pope information. So what sort of context is this in? Where were there too many adjectives? <laughs> Well, I'm going to tell you. So the real story behind this article is that Pope Francis was giving his instructions to the Vatican communications team, which recently has gotten gone like through a really big overhaul. There are new heads of the department. There are new people coming in to write for the Vatican communications team. So like Twitter and stuff. Twitter, news media, everything, everything, people, anybody who is writing or or speaking in representation of the Vatican. He's having this conversation with them. He was giving them an address. It was about seven pages long. And what he said was that he was allergic to certain adjectives that he found the communications team using really often. Allergic. Like, like authentic. So, quote, We have fallen into the culture of adjectives and adverbs, and we have forgotten the strength of nouns. Like, why say authentically Christian? It's Christian. The mere fact of the noun Christian, I am Christ, is strong. It is an adjective noun, yes, but it is a noun. The communicator must make people understand the weight of the reality of nouns that reflect the reality of people. 
And this is a mission of communication, to communicate with reality without sweetening with adjectives or adverbs. So he's basically the whole thing comes down to he wants people to consider the power of the words that they're using and not to just use them for general advertisement and like need to beef up everything you're saying and over enhance it. He says, for the church, communication is a mission. No investment is too great for spreading the word of God. At the same time, every talent must be well spent and made to bear fruit. So I get his point, but it sure made for a great headline. (laughs) Too many adjectives. Pope Francis criticizes overuse of adjectives. Best headline of the day. Those are your silly Pope watches. And just before we go, we also have some thank yous to make because we have a patron to absolve of their temporal punishments. So thank you to Jillian. Ego te absolvo. On that note, we will also thank Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor for always supporting us. Uh, We also want to thank the sound education team who invited us to come speak. And we are doing so in two weeks. I mean, two weeks from now. Two weeks from now, which means that this episode, hold on will come out literally the week that we're going to be there. So it's a perfect one to thank them on. After you hear this episode, you may even get like a bonus episode of us talking about our experiences. Who knows? But this is where we are for now. And so we will say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Fry doesn't want to say goodbye to you. I don't. (laughs) It was just too sudden. (laughs) What? (laughs) Goodbye is too sudden. Then next time I will ramp up to it and be like, and we say thank you and farewell. Good to see you again and goodbye. That's too much. And then now. you'll be ready you need for it. In between. <laughs> Bite me, Fry. <laughs> Rude.